The following audio session was recorded live at the 2017 Region 2 Convention in Costa Mesa, California. Please visit oar2.org for information about the 2018 convention in Sacramento and to get links for more convention recordings. Thank you for listening. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we begin, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please check again. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded when sharing to speak to your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. If there is press in the room, please do not take any unauthorized pictures or identify anyone using their full name. There will be audio recordings of this workshop, which you may order outside in the foyer. Uh, the workshop will have speakers uh, followed by ask it basket questions, and the topic for this meeting is the 12 traditions. And so we'll welcome our first speaker, Millie. Oh, okay. I did not know I was going to be first, but all right. How about 20 minutes? Yeah, 20 minutes. Um, hi, I'm Millie. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. When I was asked to, to do the traditions workshop, I went, oh, my God, the traditions. What do I know about the traditions? <laughs> yeah, I know a lot about the steps, but the traditions, um, I didn't realize I knew as much about them as I did. That, that um, I'm, I've been to um, step studies that do the traditions also, and so I have done them before. But first off, I'm going to read what our book says about the traditions are 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. Um, so it's the introductions to the 12 traditions and it's on page 107 in our uh, book. When we first came to Overeaters Anonymous, we were focused on our own recovery. Most of us took for granted the OA group we attended and the OA fellowship as a whole, not thinking much about how they operated, and whether they would continue to be there for us in the future. Soon, however, as we left behind our dependence on food, we began to rely on OA. We felt it was our only safe haven, and we, we reacted with fear any time we thought this fellowship might be threatened. Yet we, completely, we quickly found that we did not need to be afraid of the health of OA. Overeaters Anonymous has 12 traditions which are designed to keep our meetings and service committees on track functioning in a way as to nurture the recovery of all compulsive overeaters who seek help in this fellowship. This study of our tradition shows how these 12 suggestions have worked to help individuals, groups, and OA as a whole solve problems, thrive, and be effective instruments for carrying the message of recovery to those who still suffer. We owe a large debt of gratitude to Alcoholics Anonymous for breaking ground in establishing these traditions and allowing OA to adapt them to our fellowship. Developed through long and sometimes painful experience, the 12 traditions 
embody the same principles for living as do the 12 steps. Those who have studied them carefully have found that these traditions can be applied effectively to all human relationships, both inside and outside OA. With this in mind, we turn our attention to the traditions, trusting that as we come to understand them better, we will be better able to keep our OA lifeboat afloat and ourselves spiritually fit in the face of all challenges. So um, I went through the, the book, and I made little notes about each, each tra- uh, tradition for me. It says, um, when I came here and could so identify with others, people so different but just like me, we were um, unafraid and wanting a better, we were afraid and wanting a better way of life. We were not alone. So that's what the first tradition meant for me, that uh, I wasn't alone. And um, and that really means a lot to me. So the second tradition is, okay, now this, I don't have this very well organized here. Yeah, for our group purpose, there is but one authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Is that it? Um this tradition lets us all join in and decide what is best for our meeting, a, a group conscience. It's the God expressing himself in the meeting. No one person decides. Um, this tells us how to do that in an orderly manner. That's what it meant to me. Uh, tradition three is that the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. That one I know real well because that that was very important to me when I first came in. I said, thank God there are no requirements. Um, our door never closes to those who have a desire to stop. In no way is a way of life. I've learned that people can differ with us on many matters and still be loving, supportive friends. I mean, there's so many people in here that I would have never met in my whole life because we have nothing in common other than the fact that we're all compulsive overeaters. And number four, the only... What's four, Phyllis? (laughs) Each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. There we go. Um, Only OA spoken here, no outside um, religions, practices, etc., and um, I'm going to do number five also. I'm going to read in the book again on number five. That is the um, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive reader who still suffers. And in here in the, in the book right at the end, it says, Before OA, many of us simply lived to eat. Now that we've joined together in OA groups, we have a new purpose. We are making decisions which help us carry a message of hope and recovery to others. And um, I am going to share my story. Um, the others, the others, um, a lot of them are just about business, which I am not real crazy about. I've served on the board. I've, I've done um, a lot of service in OA. But the business part of it, I'm grateful it's there because it keeps the doors open for us and it keeps the meetings going and it keeps... I, I didn't realize before I got involved in all of those things how much goes on beyond just the meeting level to keep 
everything flowing. I'm just putting on a convention like this is a huge ordeal. We've done it in San Diego before, and it it um, it takes a year to or, or longer, eighteen months to get to get everything flowing. And it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and, and the traditions guide us through all of that. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna share my story now and let other people talk about some of the uh, the, the other ones. Um, I do love 11 attraction rather than promotion, that, that instead of promoting OA, you know, people come to us and, and ask us how we manage to, you know, keep going. And then, of course, 12, anonymity is a spiritual foundation, um, principles before personalities. But so um, a little bit about my story. I did, I did bring pictures, if anybody's interested in looking at them, they're, they're right there. I, um, how much time do I have now, Ida? <laughs> okay. So I, I come from a family that is um, totally filled with isms, that uh, my brother was in and out of prison my whole growing up life. Um, he was into drugs and when they weren't fashionable. And, um, you know, he got the, the family car got impounded. There was police pounding on our door, um, taking him off to prison in the, in the middle of the night. I mean, it, it went on and on. I mean, and that was only one of the dysfunctions. Um, there's, I'm the youngest of five siblings. And um, the oldest three were teenagers when I was a young person. So there was havoc in, in the household all the time, all, all the time. My one sister married a heroin addict. The other one got pregnant and had to get married, and it just, it just, it just went on and on. The dysfunction went on and on. And so, you know, what I would do is hide behind my mother's um, apron and cry, and, and they'd feed me. Oh, let's go get Millie some ice cream because she's this, this has been so hard on her, you know. You know that's so I learned to feed myself when when I was troubled. Um, school was difficult. Uh, I was an obese child all through high school, um, all through elementary, junior high, and high school. High school was probably the most difficult. Um, there was no dating. There was no going to the proms. None of that sort of thing. And, you know, it was hard. It was hard. But, um, you know, I had my food. So I started drinking a little bit when I was in, in high school, but it, it wasn't, wasn't much of a problem. Then I went to beauty school when I got out of, when I got out of high school, I went to beauty school. And um, I started partying and drinking and carrying on with all my hairdresser friends because... Everybody liked to do that then. And uh, there was a lot of drugs involved, a lot of liquor involved. There was, um, I had finally found a group of people that would accept me. And so, so you know, even though I knew how bad drugs and stuff were, were for you, I, I told my, my parents, I'm never going to smoke cigarettes. I'm never going to do drugs. And, of course, I wound up doing all of that stuff. <laughs> 
it, because I wanted to fit in with, with everybody else because I felt like I was apart from. And, um, you know, I got very heavy into drugs. I was arrested twice. I um, was uh, taken to the hospital and uh, I overdosed on psychedelic drugs and was taken to the psych ward and strapped down to the bed and woke up uh, not knowing who I was until the drugs got out of my system and and um, then fortunately I don't have much permanent damage. <laughs> And, uh, you know, all this time I'm eating, I'm eating, I'm eating, I'm, I'm 250 pounds or more. I stopped weighing at 250 pounds. And so life was, um, life was in turmoil, you know. The only thing I did on a consistent, consistent basis is I kept working. I kept going to work because I knew I had to support myself and, and, and take care of myself. But life, life was difficult. So, um, I came to, I had a sister that, a sister that was an alcoholic, a brother that was an alcoholic, the other brother was a drug addict. Um, my other sister was mentally ill, and I was a compulsive overeater. My father was a strict military man. He tried to rule the house with an iron hand, and of course that didn't work. <laughs> so um, I came to Overeaters Anonymous the first time. Well, let me back up. The first time I lost 100 pounds, I went to Weight Watchers. And um, I lost the weight. I had a tummy tuck and breast implants, and I thought I had arrived. I was, you know, hip slick and cool and thought I, you know, I really looked good, and people were paying attention to me, and it was the disco days, and I was, you know, partying and having a great time. And I kept the weight off for three years. And then uh, I can't remember what happened. Something happened. I have amnesia about a lot of my life. Um, it's probably selective forgetting because <laughs> there are so many things I did that were so dangerous uh, to myself and oftentimes to others also. Um, I kept the weight off for about three years and then I gained it all back. And my sister was in Alcoholics Anonymous by this time and she said, you know, there's a program that for food. And I said, really? You know, so I came to OA, and that was back in the 70s. I came to OA. I lost my weight. I stayed on that gray sheet. I got my weight off. I was speaking and doing all these things. And when I got down to goal again, I thought, well, you know, I really don't want to do all this work. This is the homework and stuff was never something I wanted to do. And so, um, I said, surely this time, with everything I know now, I mean, I got the good food plan with Weight Watchers, and now I got this spirituality with Overeaters Anonymous, surely I'll be able to keep the weight off this time. Well, I left, and it came back on in, um, almost instantaneously. Um, during those times, um, I got pregnant and had two abortions. Um, you know, I was I was living a life of insanity. You know, it was just it was just crazy, crazy, crazy life. So fast forward a couple of years, I decided I wanted to have a baby, and so I um, looked up my ex husband and <laughs> got pregnant. So I had my son when I was thirty five years old, 
and single mother because, of course, I knew that I'd be able to raise him myself because by this time I had quit using drugs and, and um, I was just drinking very little and, and I, you know, surely everything was going to be okay. Well, as soon as I had him, I said to myself, oh, my God, Millie, you've done it now. And um, I straightened up pretty much when I was raising him, but I would try. I didn't want him to have a fat mother, so I'd try and lose weight, and it would come back on. I'd try again, and it would come back on, and I'd lose, you know, 40, 50, 60 pounds, and it'd come right back on. You know, some little thing had happened, and I'd gain it right back. So I, I, um, he got to be he got to be a teenager, and a preteen, junior high school. And I thought that, you know, I was room mother, and he joined Boy Scouts, and he was, you know, played baseball, and all these things. And I thought, you know, if I do everything right, then he's not going to, he's not going to have this ism. Well, he did get it. And um, he, I, he was in rehab from the time he was 70, 17 and a half to 18 and a half. Anyway, life was crazy. I only have five minutes left, so I really want to get to to um, now. Anyhow, I came back to OA. I was catapulted back to OA. I he was in he he was out of control. My life was miserable. I was driving to the to the grocery store one day, and I said, "God, I can't take it anymore. I need you to show me what to do." I got out of my car to walk into the grocery store, and OA was written on the curb. So I had a vital spiritual experience that catapulted me back into this program, and I've been here ever since. And um, for nine years, things were, were wonderful for me here. They, they, they were fabulous. I, um, I did service. My weight was off. I was doing really good. And then nine years abstinent, I had a knee replacement, and the knee replacement was done incorrectly. And um, that was in 2011. And so um, ever since then, I've had one thing after the other that has gone on. Um, I had to have the, the knee was gone wrong, done wrong. I have had both my hips done. I had to have that knee redone. And um, I never quite recovered from any of that. Um, they couldn't figure out how come I was still wasn't walking right. And so my, my orthopedic doctor told me in 2000 and, um, well, it was 2016. Yeah, 2016, Millie, I think you need to go to a spine doctor. I think something's wrong with your back. So... I had to put that off for a little while because my one of my sisters got very ill, and she didn't have any kids or um, a husband, and she had to have open-heart surgery. And um, I ultimately had to make the decision to pull her off of life support because she, she wasn't going to make it. So I lost my sister. Two months later, I was diagnosed with a very rare spinal disorder, that um, which is the reason why I walk with a walker. I've got no feeling in the bottom of my feet or and, um, uh, severe neuropathy in my legs. Uh, it causes all kinds of uh, difficulties. And um, in the process of dealing with that, my other sister, my oldest sister, got ill and 
she passed away just this past January. So in the period of nine months, I lost two sisters and was diagnosed with this horrible spinal disease. Now, the reason I want to tell you all this is that um, I have two minutes to tell you how wonderful God is to me, for me, that I started to get really, really, um, I found myself in the bedevilments. I was, you know, in abstinence. I was unable to control my emotional nature. I was, I was falling prey to, to severe depression and, and desperation, and I, I was feeling really badly. And so I got my big book out. I got my big book, and, of course, through all this time, I was talking with my sponsor and whatnot, and I looked up, and sure enough, every one of the bedevilments was coming true for me. And I, you know, the next paragraph right after the bedevilment says... And so we look to those who have faith for the answer. And I'm, you know, I'm saying to myself, Millie, you've walked away from God. Sure, you've got all this stuff going on, but you don't want to get in bed and pull the covers up over your head. What, what's that going to do for you, you know? So I have, um, during that time that things were so rough, I had pulled away from OA somewhat because I simply didn't have the energy or the time to to spend a lot of time in OA, and I'm one who needs to be in the center of this program. Otherwise, I fall out to the fringes, and boom, I'm you know I'm spinning out the door. And so um, I made a conscious decision to um, throw myself back into program full time, even if it was difficult for me. You know, so I decided that instead of being a handicapped woman, I was going to be a handicapable woman. And um, that, that, you know, God, God doesn't give us anything we can't handle. And I've learned that in this program, that, that um, my higher power is there with me. And, you know, if I, had, I did a fear inventory, you know, with my sponsor, I, you know, and, and I tell you, I will wake up, I'm just going to take a couple more minutes. I'll wake up some days and go, oh, my God, you know. When I start the what's going to happen to me, what if, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be 70 this year. What's going to happen to me when I'm 72? What's going to happen to me when I'm 75? And what's going to happen to me? That is no good for me. I need to, you know, I need to use this program every minute of every day. My sister, who was the alcoholic, had this little frog hanging on her television set when I cleaned out her apartment. And I thought, you know, what is she got that? What did she loved frogs? I looked it up. Fully relying on God, so I carry this little guy with me, and it reminds me constantly that I need to fully rely on God. That you know, right here, right now, as some people in this program say, where my feet are planted right now, I'm fine. I had lunch with. People at the table had over a hundred years of abstinence. Now, how grateful am I for that? So, four people, and we had over a hundred years of abstinence. So, I am so grateful for this program because I would be in bed um, with the covers over my head or face down in everything I've ever done, which wasn't just food. So, thank you for letting me share, and I'm going to pass. My name is Phyllis. I'm a chunky, drunky, junkie. <laughs> I used to think I was a triple loser until I came into the program and I learned differently. Um, 
my feeling about the traditions, when I first came in the program, I said, I can't be bothered with that. I have enough trouble trying to figure out these steps. And, uh, and then I started reading about the, the things that went on before AA was founded, and those guys really had trouble. They really did. They argued about every little thing that you can think of. They wanted to go big and strong and out into the world and tell everybody who we are. And there were a couple of people who said, no, 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 you can't do that. Well, they got rid of those people and they got rid of those people. And what happened was Bill Wilson, an incredibly sick man, uh, started making some recovery. His friend had recovered, and it was all done with this magic about God. And uh, long story short, he, saw, he wrote the first big book along with a, a group of other people. And wh what does that mean to me now? Um, I just celebrated 45 years of being abstinent last month. You got to you thank yourselves for doing that, because I could not do it without the program. And and among my most important things uh, in the program are the fellowship. It would not work if there wasn't a fellowship. It would not work if there were not other people who did the same things that I did. I overdosed on drugs and alcohol. Uh, I was always on drugs, but I got mine from the doctor. So, the, so that was that was that made me better than someone who got theirs on the street, and um, it was a humiliating experience. Experience that I remember. We were at a wedding. I had been taking pills all day long. We went to the wedding, and I had a couple of drinks. And I, I, I said, I got to go home because I got to rip my clothes off. And uh, for about six, eight, maybe ten hours. We could not get the doctor to come to the house. We couldn't even get the doctor to answer the phone. And uh, had no clue at all about whether I was going to be able to get out of that room. Uh, I got out of that room. I got better. I still took drugs. And I still would drink a little bit. I, I would do everything less than I did it before, which was pretty much the total of like three people drinking and using, you know, and I, it was just less than I had used before. Um, I was widowed when I was 34 years old. Uh, my husband was killed in an accident, and my kids were 6, 8, and 10. And I had to go to work. So I went to work, and it was very, very difficult about taking care of the kids, taking care of the house, taking care of the dog, taking care of the car, taking care of me? Don't be silly. I, I you know, I, like I don't have time to take care of me. And uh, I think it was a, a spiritual shove that I got when I went to, uh, oh, the man, a man I was dating at the time this was like six years after my, my husband had died. And uh, the man I was dating was going to go into business 
and he was going to do Food Lovers Anonymous or something like that, you know, and he was going to psych everybody, you know, for them to, to stop what they were doing. And I'm looking through the newspaper one day, and I say, oh, look, here's a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. That must be something like what you wanted to do. I think you should investigate. By this time, I was a little overweight, not, not my peak. My peak weight was in the area of 235 pounds. Uh, I'm sure I weighed a little bit more, but I refused to get on the scale. It didn't matter anymore. You know, you get to a certain number, and what difference does it make if, it, if it's a few pounds more? but it does matter if it's a pound less. <laughs> and, and the interesting thing about that was I, I, I really was not aware of, of what was happening in my life with food. Uh, I was aware of the other problems, and I went to an AA meeting, and uh, somebody there was a big mouth and said, you should go to OA as well. I said, I don't have time to do anything and they said, well, it's the same program. And there was something about the program that was magical to me at that time. I was ready, okay? And the message came from my higher power and, you know, led me into all of this. And I walked into my first OA meeting, and uh, I felt like I was home. Everybody was so loving and so caring, and there was none of that in the world that I came from. Everything was bravado. Everything was a big deal. You got to wear flashy clothes, and you got to go to the right places, and and you have to do all the things that we do. Those are the people out there that are using. And I decided that I I would come into the program, and I'd give them thirty days. That's all they would have. If at the end of thirty days it didn't work, I'm out of here. Uh, well, I've been giving them 30 days, 30 days, and 30 days <laughs> for like 45 years now. 45 years and, and one month. <laughs> and uh, I got abstinent. I went, at that time, there were no choices. The, the program was just beginning to flower in, in the area that I lived in, in New York. And... Uh, we had no, we had no uh, literature, we had no books, we had nothing. So we used the big book. It's a wonderful piece of literature. This is my friends, because I didn't know I was doing this until I came here this morning. So, you know, follow me if you can. And uh, I said, fine. I read the first part of the big book first 163 pages, and boy, I thought that was wonderful. And that was as far as I read. I didn't go any further than that because I didn't need to hear stories about other people who had these problems. I could write my own. And in, in that learning about myself in the program, which came from the steps and the traditions not to overlook that. The steps are for my recovery. The traditions were to keep the recovery in the group. And, uh, they, you know, I, you couldn't relate to these. It says uh, our public relations policy and our no dues or fees and you can't uh, talk about other people and, and things like that. And I said, I just had to put it aside for a while. And uh, I was very, very fortunate. I had the sponsor from hell, 
whom, whom I chose myself because I had known her before I got into the program, and she was thin. So I thought that was all I needed. She'll tell me what she did, but that's not what she told me what to do. <laughs> and uh, for some reason, again, uh, it, it's still magic to me. I did it. I did everything she said. I went on the gray sheet. I lost 85 pounds in six months. I'm still on a, a food plan that's based on the gray sheet. I still don't eat certain foods. I have no need to eat them. They don't even dance. I don't get visions of sugar plums, you know. And, uh, and I was losing my weight, and I started to work the steps. And once, the first time that we finished working the steps with the sponsor, uh, we started to talk about the traditions. And the traditions are extremely vital to the recovery of the group. The best, I, I do a newcomers meeting uh, for a meeting in, in my hometown. And I've been doing that for about, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Every six months, I get elected again. And I always think that's because nobody else wants to do it, <laughs> you know. But what I tell them is that everything depends on the fellowship. I never had that kind of relationship with people until I came to the program. And uh, how wonderful it is to know that everybody in the room is just like I am. doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, you know, what your background is. None of that matters. Compulsive eaters have to stick together because, frankly, kids, we have no place else to go. We have no place else to go. I've done all the the, uh, the weight programs and I've done all the uh, the imaginary ones, you know, that the subliminal ones that came out. And, uh, you know, I did an exercise program one time where I had to bang my hip against the wall and the only thing I got was black and blue. And... Uh, that never worked, and that the fellowship holds the whole group together. Each one of us, each one of you, has the responsibility. You get a, you get a sponsee. You give the sponsee what you got. Can't give, can't give more or less, but I never ask my sponsees to do anything that I don't do. And so I, I'm kept alert and, and up on uh, subjects, and they keep me advised of all the terrible things that are still out there. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we're doing this to, to recover. The traditions that are, are meaningful to me today uh, are, number three, the only requirement for membership in OA is the desire to stop eating compulsively. You don't have to be my height. You don't have to be uh, male or female. You don't have to be... Um, you if you weigh over this amount, you can come in. But if you weigh less, you know, there's nothing we can do for you. It's so important to realize that that's the only qualification for members in, in this group. Uh, the, uh, another one is that is five... Each member must carry, carry the, the message to a compulsive overeater who still suffers. And in 12, they say the same thing, that it's, it's without any, uh, well, all I can think of is icing. I'm sorry. 
icing on the cake to, to be able to uh, – my job is to carry the message. I carry the message constantly. I carry the message when I go to a meeting. I carry the message when I'm a sponsor. I carry the message when I share with, with others. My abstinence is important to me as it can be to all of you because it shows that even a plain, ordinary person can do it. There's nothing super about, about me anymore. I left that all 45 years ago because I used to think I was, I was different, and I was. I was a, a, an alcoholic, a drug addict. I had te uh, temper tantrums, which I gathered from today are very common in, in this group. I, uh, I really did not get along with people as, as well as I thought it, I was, and I thought I was... I thought I was pretty hot stuff, and the the illusion was broken when I could when I learned the humility in doing the first three steps in doing the first step, you know, and that's somebody mentioned it this morning, and it's true, and that's the one thing that is vital to be doing on a daily basis. I'm powerless over food. My sponsor once told me, take the bagel, put it on a chair, put the chair up on the table, and fall down in front of it and, and worship it. Well, I said, you know, that's a little extreme. I don't have to go that far. But the fact of the matter is that I have to be abstinent every day in order for me to live life. I never thought I would live this long. Uh, I never thought my life would be what it is today because I wasn't going to be here. Uh, and uh, my family has turned into the most wonderful kids in the whole world. And they're not kids anymore. They're 62, 57, and 56. <laughs> and uh, I've been graced by God with the most gorgeous grand uh, a grand baby girl you know and and that's amazing because i had only sons and they got married and they had only sons and suddenly we have this princess who's living with us to teach us about life from 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 this the light the smallest time the the when you think it's not important you make there is such an impression that I that I am aware of all of us making on this baby that it gives me the reality to my world. I never thought I would be 86 years old. I'm going to be 86 next month. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have children and grandchildren and, and a great-grandchild now. And I owe it all to this program. Another one of the the uh, steps, uh, the traditions that's so important. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of this program, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. I don't get involved in that anymore. I, had, I moved a year ago, a little over a year ago, to a senior living place. And all they do is gossip. <laughs> I swear that's all they do. <laughs> and I, I said, that's not for me. And I have to find something here that will work for me so that I can feel that my life is worthwhile. 
and I started a newsletter for them, and I, I edit it, and um, I, I do some writing for it, and I am so happy doing that, and I'm singing in a chorus that is so bad. <laughs> But these, these people come out and they try. I'll tell you how bad it is. My husband sings in the, in, the, in the chorus as well, and he doesn't know A from B as far as notes are concerned. And he says, am I singing it right? You know, and, and all of that pleasure I never would have experienced. Uh, I have the biggest kitchen I ever had in my whole life, and I don't use it. There are linens in the closets in the kitchen because I have no place else to put them. And, and you know, things are, are different. I finally got a walk-in closet, but you can't turn around in it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's about the way it is. But all of those things are so minor when it comes down to what recovery is like in this program. Recovery in this program is that we tell each other that it's possible, that you can do it, and you can make it happen. You are responsible for being abstinent every day. You are responsible for working the tools of the program. You are responsible. It's my responsibility to be a sponsor. It's my responsibility to give this program away whenever I can because... God knows, and he really does, that I would not be here if it weren't for this program. The program has given me uh, a life, as I said, that I would never have believed I could have, but there are, you know, there, are, there is life in between that. Uh, my husband is blind and deaf and is on the dialysis three times a week, and we do the best we can. I do the best I can. I, I had a long period of adjustment to make to all of those things in this new place that we live, and uh, I think I finally got it. A little late, but I finally got it. And we do the best we can. We do the best we can because it's all we've got. And you are all that I have, and I need you all a day at a time for my recovery. I thank you, and I thank the chairman of, of the speaker getters for asking me if I would share this this morning, and I'm delighted. I'm so happy to do this. I have a message, and I like to tell it to other people. Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'm suddenly wondering, how do I follow this? <laughs> uh, but then I remember, you know, the only requirement to be in this room is a desire to stop eating compulsively. And I have that. And so uh, thank you to the organizers for asking me to speak. Um, we tell in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today, right? So... I'll start there. Um, I heard OA whispered on the wind for years and thought, F that, I don't need that. I remember being at the gym once with a woman uh, who I respected a lot because, you know, she was thin, and that's the requirement for respect. If you're skinny, I heart you. Um, 
But then I noticed she had all those ugly stretch marky things, and I thought, well, no, maybe I don't respect her. I'm not really sure. So we're getting dressed one morning. This is working out, getting ready to go to work. And she said, did I ever tell you how I lost my weight? And I said, no. She said, I went to OA. What's OA? She explains, and I said, well, how did you do it? And she said, I committed my food every day, and I've lost over 100 pounds, and my husband's in program. And I'm thinking, back the truck up. Commit your food every day? I don't know what's happening at breakfast, so I'm going to pass on your whole crazy pants weight loss situation. Fast forward uh, several years. Uh, My husband and I were trying to get pregnant, wasn't working, went through IVF. And um, at about that same time, food had beaten me into a state of reasonableness. And through a series of very fortunate events, I ended up at my first meeting, I think it was May 28th, 29th of 2012. And, is that right? Hell far. All right. It's a good day. It's Founders Day. I'm feeling good. Okay. So I find my first meeting, um, and I cry the whole time. I don't know if anyone else has had that experience. All I could do was sob. And I wanted to punch everyone who was smiling. Because why do you get to be happy and I'm miserable? I don't understand how you people did it. And furthermore, you're all skinny, so now I super hate you, except I want what you have, and I don't want to do it. And I'm just going to sit here and keep crying. That's That's all I knew how to do. I found a sponsor who had all the qualifications that I was looking for. She was young, skinny, and had great shoes. So, of course, that was going to work out spectacularly. Uh, And it worked for a while until it didn't. I left out one important piece. Three weeks after I got abstinent, I found out that I was pregnant with not one child or two, but three. Spoiler alert. One of those children survived. I lost two babies very, very early in the pregnancy, but in my heart, those were miscarriages. Um, So that was the drinking from the fire hose version of um, abstinence and recovery as far as I was concerned. I thought, my God, it can't get harder than this. Spoiler alert number two, it did. But um, stayed abstinent through all of that. Um, continued going to meetings, recovered. My weight was falling off while I was pregnant. And I'm thinking, this is weird. Isn't this when I get a hall pass to put on 100 pounds? This is super crazy. Why is all the weight coming off? And then you pour the hormones on it. I'm at my doctor's office one day. She has a very thick Brooklyn accent. This is up in Tarzana because, of course, you have a Brooklyn accent in Tarzana. And she says... (laughs) Honey, what's happening to you? You look like a concentration camp victim. Why are you losing all this weight? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just doing what you're doing. She's like, calm down first. Number two, start eating this way. So I start eating that way. So my my abstinence was through medical necessity given to me. And on top of that... um, what I was doing at the time was no uh, no recreational sugar, no white flour, and then eating in certain ways to support the pregnancy. And so the weight's falling off. I have the baby. I'm elated um, and still pretty crazy, but I'm skinny, so this is pretty awesome, right? Uh, life continues to pace. I'm on maternity leave. I'm going to meetings. I'm speaking at my local intergroup. Um, And then 
my husband got uh, got a job in my hometown, two hours north of Los Angeles, a place to which I swore I would only return to be buried. That didn't work out. <laughs> uh, in January of that year, I got laid off from a job that was my entire self-esteem. I mean, my core identity was that work. I was a good person if I got a good job review that year and a raise. And if I didn't, then, oh, my God, I'm the devil. And by the way, I'm always the devil because of yada, yada, yada in my background. But now that the job has been taken away from me, I am spinning. Furthermore, we were about to buy a house. And I'm thinking, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. That gets taken care of. And those of you in program, you, you know how that works. You're faced with the impossible. You go to God. And through a series of events that you have zero control over, things get taken care of. You put one foot in front of the other. That's how this deal works. You show up. You do the work. You cry it out. You talk with your fellows. And things get handled. And so now I live in that hometown that I swore I would never return to. And I could not be happier. Uh, so life continues. I am home with my, uh, my now oldest daughter. Uh, I went back to work June 2015 and still abstinent, struggling with, you know, how am I going to work my program? I'm used to being in Los Angeles. There are 12 meetings a day and they're what, five here a week. Oh my gosh, I just can't recover. What am I going to do? Wine, 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 victim, 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 bitch, bitch, bitch. Uh, I am blessed with a really, really strong sponsor without whom I, I don't know where I would be. Uh, she has been indispensable. And every time I tell her that, she says, no, no, you're the indispensable one. It's your willingness to do this work that keeps you here. It's not me. I just, I point, I point out the potholes and the signposts. You decide to keep walking. I thought, okay, well, that sounds kind of awesome. I think I'll believe you. Except I don't want to believe you because, remember, I'm a piece of crap, but I'm just, I'm going to believe you. Okay. So I keep walking. Uh, last January, the impossible happened, and I understood this to be medically impossible. I got pregnant again. That baby is now seven months old and hanging out with my mom and my sister while I'm here today. And... <laughs> Do you ever have those moments where you sit and you think about what's happened in your recovery and you think, oh my God, how am I alive? How am I abstinent? How am I sober in my eating and my thinking? How is this possible? And then I remember there's a two-part answer for that. Part A is the 12 steps and part B is the 12 traditions. And then you sprinkle a whole lot of willingness <laughs> on all of that. And, and that's how... That's how I'm alive. That's how I am a mother that I respect. That's how I'm a wife that I am proud to be. None of that would be possible without the steps and without the traditions. The steps are about how I recover. The traditions are about how we recover, how we keep this healthy, not only for our sake, 
but for mine. I'm selfish. I, I need this to be here. Do I want to do the work for it to be healthy? No. <laughs> I don't want to call you. I don't want to give service. I, I don't want to. But I've reached a point in my recovery now where I, it's like um, I, I know too much. I, I, I know enough to know that this thing doesn't survive unless I take part in it. I have to pass down what's been given to me to the best of my ability. And I have to show up when I'm asked to be of service. So I have served as uh, intergroup president in that town that I swore I would never go back to except to be buried. Um, I have sponsored more women than I thought my schedule could handle. And then over the years, God has paired that back to a, a load that I'm, I'm comfortable with today. Uh, when I'm asked to speak, I, I speak. You know, if I can make the schedule work, and I make the schedule work, I, I speak. Um, I have done some extraordinary things in recovery. I have made amends to dead people. I have uh, a relationship with my mother that I thought was impossible because I spent you know, my adult life shoving her away, telling her, no, 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 I'm fine. No, everything's okay. Sure, I'm 263.8 pounds. I know that because of Weight Watchers. <laughs> no, but I'm really fine. I know. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. She would come and visit me in Los Angeles. Honey, I'm worried about you. I don't know why. I'm fine. Everything's okay. I hate myself, but I'm fine. Everything's, no, no, really, everything's fine. You have got to believe me when I tell you that everything's fine. Because if you don't, if you ask me one question too much, and I don't have a canned answer for you, I am going to crack. The earth will swallow me whole, and oh my God, I'm going to die. So you have to believe that I'm okay. So I had the makeup, I had the clothes, I had the accessories, I had all the stuff that I thought was required for you to buy my lie. You have to believe that I'm okay. Please, God, don't ask me that I'm not. And then over the years, mercifully, all of those things have been stripped away. I don't miss them. I don't need them. And here's the best part. I, I never did. You know, it's, it's like the food. It worked until it stopped working. None of those things work for me. The purses and the clothes and the friends who weren't really friends. And none of that, none of that works. My life is so simple and there is so much joy in it. I am humbled when I look around at it. And the steps made that possible. The, when it comes to the traditions, though, there are a couple that have been really important in my, uh, in my recovery the first one, it's not even the first tradition, but it's the third. The only requirement for membership is that you have a desire to stop eating compulsively. That's all you have to do. You don't have to be skinny. You don't have to be pretty. You don't have to lose enough weight and then go to a meeting. You don't have to be abstinent to talk. You don't have to have six years of recovery in order to share. You just have to want to stop being crazy when it comes to food. That's it. And on that basis, I have something in common with every one of you in here, even though I don't know your names. I know, I know what I need to know about you 
to know that you get me. You get what it means when I say my name is Lauren and I'm a compulsive overeater, as our luncheon speaker shared. (laughs) I know you're petty. I know you're jealous. I know you're super sensitive. (laughs) I know you love being a victim because that's me too. And so on that basis, we have more than enough in in common to help each other recover. Um, Another one that stands out for me um, is the first one. Our common welfare comes first. Personal recovery depends on OA unity. I learned a very important lesson um, not long after I moved from Los Angeles. Unity does not mean uniformity. The abstinence that works for you could kill me and vice versa. You may have an abstinence and a food plan that are completely different things. Maybe I don't. Maybe mine are reversed. Uh, it, It doesn't matter. I don't have to do it the way you do it. You don't have to do it the way I do it. The it is what's important. A fellow told me early on in my um, recovery that the process of recovery is like hiking a mountain and a sponsor is a Sherpa who just points out the path. Yeah, you decide if you're going to walk. Now that sponsor, sponsor's walking with you. You walk and you walk and you walk and the sponsor says, okay, here's a fork in the road. I can tell you about going left. No idea what's going to happen with going right. You decide whether you're going to go left or right. But just because someone chooses to go left and I choose to go right, that doesn't mean that one path leads to the top of the mountain and the other doesn't. For all I know, they both go there. But it's not for me to tell you how to do it. All I can do is tell you what works for me. And at the group level, so a a quick story about what happened at the group level. So I moved to my new town, my old new town, and start going to meetings. And I have a 9, 10, 11 month old child at the time. And uh, I wanted to bring her to meetings. And I thought, oh, she's not old enough to really be disruptive. Uh, There were some fellows who disagreed. And some fellows made an earnest effort to have the local meeting groups take a group conscience and decide whether or not they wanted children at their meetings and whether they should be open or closed. Resentment. (laughs) Super huge resentment. I did a lot of work on that one. Um, But what ended up happening was that all of the groups decided that they preferred that children not be there. And that one, I think one meeting a week was open, meaning that people who are not compulsive overeaters are are welcome to attend. And so my ego took a personal affront to all of that and said, screw you guys, I'm never going to another meeting again. And I did what I heard to do in the room. You take the message to the meeting and the mess to your sponsor. So I took the mess to my sponsor, and she very lovingly suggested, you know, you get to recover too, but so do they. Everyone gets to recover. And there is but one ultimate authority, a loving power, as expressed through the group conscience. 
So if that's what the group conscience says, then that's what happens. But why should that preclude you from recovering? Have you ever thought of a babysitter? (laughs) No. I don't want to. I want it my way. Uh, the, The bottom line is that that resentment that I thought I was choking on is is gone. You know, there, there's no need. I get to recover the same way anybody else recovers. And who am I to tell you that you have to accommodate my method? What the hell do I have a method for anyway? There, there's, we're all here because we're nuts. Yeah, we have a brain that says, I had a really hard day at work, so brownie. I don't know normies who follow that logic. I'm still trying to work out why that is. But all I know is that that thinking is somehow irregular to people who are not compulsive overeaters. And the reason I came here bleeding and broken and sobbing was because I know that I am crazy when it comes to food. And with all of the earnestness in me, I just want to not be crazy. So those 12 steps and those 12 traditions are the signposts on that mountain for me. My sponsor points them out, and I either walk the path or I don't. Or I walk it quickly or I walk it slowly. But I do walk. I have to walk. Because if I don't walk, I'm going to eat. And for us to eat is to die. And I have a life that I could not have dreamed of. I have love in my life that I would swear I don't deserve. I have children who are insane and gorgeous and gifts from God. I have relationships that are healing that I would have thought impossible. But the, the proof is in the pudding. The results are in the walk. And so all I have to do is keep walking and look at the sign and make a decision. It's a step three decision. Am I going to turn my will in my life over? Or am I going to do it my way and walk back down the mountain? Sometimes I walk backwards. I hazard a guess we all do. But I found that walking backwards hurts a lot more than walking forwards. So I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful for the signposts. I'm grateful to all of you for pointing them out, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope, and for being here. This program is a blessing. Each one of you are are a blessing. And every day of abstinence is um, is a miracle. So thank you for letting me share. Um, it's time for ask it basket questions. I think it's circulating. So um, I think we have questions. And then we just, oh, uh, ooh, things, stuff. Hey, stuff. All right. Um, I'll just start opening these up and we'll see. Um, one question of anyone. How do you use the traditions in your relationships outside of OA? Anybody want that one? 
Okay. I follow the same the same path on a personal level that I do on the the huge level of the program. Uh, it, it you know it it can't be done any other way, and I don't gossip and I you know and I I, I had a thing going at a meeting and I got to talk about this. Somebody gets up at a meeting and always talks about the kind of work that's done, and. Uh, I think that's against the traditions. You're not supposed to personalize your life at a meeting. And I can remember I worked in an eating disorder unit, and I used to have to take the patients to the meetings, and I would sit in the back and, and not be part of it. Of course, after the meeting, I would talk to some of my, my buddies, but it would not be appropriate for me to let everybody in the room know that I'm a therapist that works with eating disorders. So uh, I, I think the traditions are personal for us as well. So. Melly, do you have anything? Mm, no, I think that's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what traditions were most important for you to learn? Um, Anonymity being the foundation, because I'm a huge gossip. I want to know everyone's business, and I want to tell everyone everyone's business so that you know that I'm important because I have information. Except Tradition 12. <laughs> so that's got to go out the window. Um, and that one was uh, difficult for me because so much of my self-esteem was wrapped in my understanding of what you thought of me and the only leverage that I had over your opinion of me was information so if I could give you something that I thought you wanted you would like me ergo I'm a good person I'm told that doesn't make sense to people who aren't compulsive overeaters but it made brilliant sense to me but uh, but today my understanding is uh, there's, there's just no place for that there's no need for that because of step seven, humility. I'm no better or worse than anyone. There's no imagined ladder of worth. The one that I've created in my head, it doesn't exist. So I don't need to manage your opinion of me because your opinion of me is out of my control anyway. So anyone else want to share on that one? No? Okay. Uh, here's another one. For someone having difficulty maintaining abstinence, what tradition or traditions can help? The third tradition. Yeah. <laughs> I would say the third tradition. I'm Millie, compulsive overeater. Uh, um, the only, only requirement is to want to stop eating compulsively. You know, it, it uh, doesn't mean we have to come in here and do it. Although I highly suggest that you do it when you can, but it happens in its own time. You know, I didn't get abstinent the moment I walked in here. All I could do was sit and cry. Like... Um, so many of us uh, do, and that was my second go-round. And um, if there'd been any other requirement for membership, you know, I I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been here, you know. Um, so I think that that's probably probably the the biggest one for me, anyway. Okay. Let's see. Uh, for anyone. How do you apply the traditions in your personal lives? I, I think we've all touched on that one. Um, 
anonymity is is a big one. Uh, understanding that there is a there's a higher purpose than whatever purpose I think is afoot. So take that in take that in a work situation, for example. I'll be working on a particular project and think that, you know, I've I've got the answer. The way that I'm structuring this, this is the thing, this is how it needs to happen, this is for the good of the company, because, you know, <laughs> I said so. <laughs> so that should be it, right? Except I'm not the ultimate authority. My my boss is. And so he may disagree with me. Not a fan of that, but <laughs> it's not my favorite moment of the day. But, you know, it, it's the whole point of the traditions, I, I think I shared earlier, it's not about I. The, the recovery is I. The traditions are we. And this person for whom I work has a higher purpose. He is personally responsible for the welfare of everybody who works there. So even though I've structured a particular project a certain way, and I think this is the way it needs to go, his view may be different. And guess what? He runs the place. So I get to park my ego and my pride and remember that none of this is personal and that there's a larger purpose afoot and that I can be of service to him and to this company by parking my ego and doing what's best for the group as expressed through, in this case, in, in this context, what he says needs to happen. It's, it's not about me. That's what the traditions do for me. They remind me that regardless of the situation I'm in, that situation is not about me. There's at least one other person involved. So um, that, that's how I use the traditions. Prior to program, I had a, uh, a program that I followed. I never kept a job for more than 18 months because they were stupid and they were dumb and they didn't know how to do this or that or whatever it may be. And I don't like them. And then I came into the program and that got tossed away somewhere. <laughs> and uh, my life has become very focused on the now and not on the yesterday or the tomorrow. Uh, tradition one also um, is huge in my life. Um, I've worked with the same people for oh, 30 years, long, long, long time. And in, in the hairdressing field, that's very uncommon. But um, we had just moved to a new salon, and uh, one of the fellows, that we had a coffee pot, a new coffee pot. And so I, I'm usually the first one there in the morning because I'm a morning person, and so I learned how to make the coffee in this weird coffee pot. And one day some of the other people were talking about, oh, that coffee pot's so hard to use or whatever, whatever, whatever. They weren't talking to me, mind you, but they were talking in the salon. So I voiced up, and I said, well, if you learn how to use it right, it works. And one of the guys screamed out. He was probably as far away from me as the door. Millie, you think you're a know-it-all bitch. <laughs> and I went, whoa. And um, so we went back and forth slightly, and the owner of the salon, who's a dear friend, said, come on, you guys. You know, there was clients in there. We were all working on clients. We weren't alone. And, um, you know, later that night I had to go home and take a look at that. And I thought, you know, 
Millie, they weren't talking to you. And you decided you had to pop up, you know, speak up. So the, the point is, I got to do, I got to, I got to um, apologize to him. He was flabbergasted that I apologized to him. He was like, you're apologizing to me after I called you a bitch? And I'm like, you know, I do act like I, I know it all sometimes. But the thing is that we need unity in the salon. We need, we need to all work together in order to keep the place running like it does. And, and we do a good job at it, and it's the same like here. So I need to use these, these, these traditions in my life so that everything runs well. It's not just, um, it's not just about me. And, and I, you know, because of this program, I get to take a look at my part in it and, and make things right so that things are unified. And, it, and so tradition one means a lot to me. We need unity in the family, I discovered. Yeah. And uh, I came from screaming and, and fighting and, and uh, a great deal of pressure on me. But that was what they were doing. And uh, my family functions a lot better now than they used to. And that is magic. That is magic. If you're not a believer, then you've got to watch the, the magician. <laughs> um, I want to follow up on on something that Phyllis just mentioned about the importance of uh, unity in the family. Um, my my oldest daughter about a month ago was diagnosed um, with a condition that I think she should not have because this was not my plan. My plan was for my child to be perfectly healthy and well-adjusted and nothing was going to be wrong with her. Thank you very much. Um, except that didn't happen. So I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but when presented with a problem, my knee-jerk reaction outside of recovery is to instantly fix it using all of the tools all the time, a thousand percent. Anyone relate? Show of hands? Yes? Okay. So that's, that's my best answer. But thank God I have enough time in this program to know that that does not work. That does not support my abstinence. That doesn't support my, my family in this case. So thank God I am married to a man who has a very measured view of things and a very healthy skepticism. So in the face of this diagnosis and the stack of papers about an inch thick that we were given and all of the books that we were given to read and all of the things to do, and a pediatrician who said, look, all of this stuff is stuff you can do, but you have to do what works for your family. You have to do what works for your unit. Sounds exactly like tradition. Yes? It's, it's about the unit. It's about the unit. So my husband says, look, we could do all of the things, or we could just take it one step at a time. Well, darn if that doesn't sound like recovery to me. One thing at a time. One foot in front of the other. So this week, do this thing. That's enough. Next week, do another thing. That's enough. When, you've, when and if we, as a unit, as her parents, feel like we can do more, we will. But it's not about me and my crazy thinking that says, let's do it all right now and fix her because she's got to get fixed. My plan my plan is gone. I have no plan. My plan means nothing. 
because you know my my plan was for me to never be a compulsive overeater in the first place. So so much for my plans. Um, so here's another one. I'm I'm gonna put this to all three of you. This one's super good. When you hear a blatant violation of a tradition in a meeting, how do you handle it without embarrassing people? Or is it okay to embarrass people? I'm going to give that one to Phyllis. (laughs) Actually, we had a, uh, what did we have, Dina? What's the meeting called? Steering committee meeting. We had a steering committee meeting where uh, all of the people who hold positions come to that meeting. And I talked about that. I said, I don't know what to do because I've already done, you know, I, I, I put my head on the thing and it's coming down to chop it off because that person got very angry at me. And what happened was a gentleman, because I insisted that it, it be either a gentleman or two people. should always be two people that go and tell some, somebody something that is could be better. And uh, they took it out of my hands. There I go. Um, I've been in meetings before um, where uh, this one particular instance I can think of is, is a, a new fellow came in uh, to the meeting and identified himself as a compulsive overeater. When he shared, he started talking about this wonderful gym equipment that he sold. And that if, you know, that you could be buff like him, it, you want to come talk to him and he'll hook you up with this. You know, and, and um, the secretary actually stopped the beating right then and said, uh, excuse me, you need to speak with people after the meeting about that if you want to if you want to do that instead of or yeah or it's really not really not right in the rooms but we definitely don't do it in an open meeting situation so so you know you have to people get to step up and and do what's right because it's not what we do here it's just not what we do and it's not easy it's not easy because you're my first feeling was to say, that's my fault. You know, it's my problem. And and then I said, no, we have to talk about it. And, you know, it may have ended up differently, but they did, somebody did say they were going to speak to him. Because he comes in wearing a uniform that is peculiar to the kind of work he does. So you take one look at him and you know what he does. And then he tells the group about the work that he's doing outside, fixing things. No, no. That's a no-no. You can talk to somebody personally if, if you feel the urge, but you don't take time in a meeting to do that. Um, to echo the, the other comments, you know, how do you handle it without embarrassing people? If you're embarrassed by something I have to say, quite frankly, that's on you. That's not on me. I'm not saying something to intentionally hurt you. But I'm I'm speaking out of place out of a place of concern not only for my own recovery but the re- the recovery of the group. So there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to do that. Um, for instance, in a, in a group as has been shared, if you hear something happening in a meeting, um, something that you know violates the group conscience or it's just not what we do, 
for me personally, I, I speak to the fellow afterward because that's what was done to me when I was new in meetings and found myself doing things that we just don't do. Someone came and spoke with me afterward. Now, I'm going to have some feelings about that, and that's why God made pen and paper and sponsors. I can go handle that. And if I'm, if I'm embarrassed by that, that's where I take that. But the fellow who spoke to me spoke out of concern for the group out of concern for tradition one about OA unity. So an answer to the question, is it okay to embarrass someone? That's out of my hands. If I'm acting to intentionally embarrass you, then that is on me. And no, that is not okay. We don't do that to each other. I'm in no position of authority over you and neither is anybody else. But it's our obligation in order to keep this healthy to call things out when they're not right, if the group conscience is being violated, if crosstalk is happening, if uh, if something just isn't right, it's not being done, call it out, not only for your sake, but for everybody else's sake. And there are appropriate and inappropriate ways uh, to do that. Uh, sharing from experience, I was in a meeting once where a fellow took very strong exception to the fact that I kept looking at my phone and in the middle of the meeting, while someone else was talking, she said, would you please put that thing away? And I said, no, my literature is on this phone. That's what I had been looking at. And she, crestfallen is a good word to describe what happened on her face. And I felt badly saying it too. Like, oh, my God, am I, am I not supposed to be doing this? Should I have my books instead of my phone? And so I, you know, the meeting ended. And that fellow came to talk to me afterward, and she said, I feel like I need to make amends for what I just said. I, I, I didn't know. And I said, I, I accept that, uh, and, and thank you for coming to talk to me. So we, you know, it's, I think it's very healthy for us to call things out when we feel obliged. If we see something that doesn't look right, but y'all could be wrong. <laughs> and again, that's why God made pen, paper, and sponsorship. So, uh, let's see, there's another one, uh, this I'm reading. Thank you. I'm picturing you ladies reaching across the table, giving me a hand and helping me over the river of food addiction to a life, happy, joyous, and free. When you're struggling, what is the first thing you do to stay abstinent? I usually cry. Don't know if y'all picked up on this. I'm a crier. <laughs> Yeah, crying, crying works for a while, but then I have to actually do something. It's a program of action. You know, the, 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 what's the saying? that the, the Step one is about thought and everything after that, action, 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 and more action. So after the crying, I do something. And the something I do is pray. So I forgot where I heard this, but the, the best prayer I have ever known is one word long, help. Because that's an acknowledgement that I don't have an answer and I need one and I'm feeling desperate and I can take my, my brokenness, my struggling for abstinence, whether it be abstinence from food, emotional abstinence, whatever. I can take my struggle to a power greater than myself and say, I'm, I'm tapping out. I have no idea. Guide me. I have whatever it is. Help. Just help. So the first thing I do is pray. And then that doesn't work. Because I'm looking for uh, results yesterday, and that's when I go to the tools. And um, 
the hundred pound phone and the writing that I don't want to do and the step work that I really don't have time for because don't you know I have a job and two children and I, but if I want to feel better, I have to do what works and that's what works. So in order, cry, pray, tools. Ditto. (laughs) No, the the fact of the matter is that uh, when someone calls and they're in a really difficult spot, let's slow down. Let's let's talk about this and, uh, you know, see what could come up. Like, what were you doing just before this happened, you know, and... Most of the time, that has bearing on, on you know, the way the reaction turned out to be. But it's uh, when you're a sponsor, it just happens. You know, I'm not saying that we do everything good and and wonderful, but it's we're doing the best we can. And, and my mission is to try to help this person in trouble, and that's what my prayer is. Well, with me, um, this is Millie, uh, compulsive overeater. With with me, with this recent thing that I've had with with my spine and all this kind of stuff, when I um, when I start going down that that dark hole, the the rabbit hole of poor me, you know, poor me, what's going to happen to me, and this and that and something else, um, uh, I need to work with someone else and get out of Millie and get on helping someone else because that's the only thing that really helps me in this program, which is why I'm here, which is why I'm sharing my story, and on and on and on is because I have to get out of myself because me, myself, and I don't do well. (laughs) Find a new self. Okay. Um, the, the final ask it basket question, what does working the traditions look like in your everyday life? How does it make a difference or does it? Um, I, I think we've touched on this one a lot. Um, does it make a difference? It makes a great deal of difference. Um, it's an acknowledgement that the world is not about me. You know, observing the traditions and how I live my life reminds me that, it is not about me anymore. Me living my life about me on my terms, that's what got me in here. And the only way I have a shot at being happy, joyous, and free is remembering that I, I am not the point. We are the point. The unit is the point, whether that unit is my office, whether it's my family, whether it's my my marriage, my relationship with my mother, the meeting that I'm in. There is a purpose other than my own that is more important. And if I can be of service in that purpose, then that's that's what matters. The answer's in the big book. Yeah. <laughs> the first word of the first step, we. So I think that's all the time we have today. So... Okay. I can't think of any place I'd rather be than here. Yeah, what she said. Okay, uh, so we close the meeting now? Are we done? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Thank you all for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. It's now time to close the session. 
please stand and join hands, and we will close with uh, the serenity prayer.